Thank you, Mark, and good morning again. Sometimes we can feel that life is just a series of fighting against everything that is holding us back. There are always things that hold us back in our lives, things that are stopping us from reaching our true potential or uh, that encroach on our happiness. Uh, there are things that we try to throw off and rid ourselves of and think, uh, well, if we if we got rid of these things, then we'd be free. Then things would be much better for for me and for society. On a local scale, there might be things like a bad relationship or a bad habit or, or bad health that's holding you back. But on a larger scale, there are elements of our modern world which uh, seem to be holding us back as a society. For my undergraduate, I did a commerce degree and some lecturers, probably the finance lecturers above all, uh, were, were saying we need to get rid of as much government regulation on business as possible and uh, lower, lower the tax rate as much as we can because that's what's holding the economy back. If we cut back on the red tape and on the taxes and the restrictions on industry, then business would be free to operate as they want. And that's the freedom that we need because then the market will be able to produce the goods and services that are demanded and there'll be more jobs and more opportunities and we'll be better off. Uh, on the other side, there's the promise that uh, or that uh, freedom can only happen if we throw off anything that oppresses us. We need to be released from all oppression. Then society will be free. So the sexual revolution was designed to throw off oppressive views of sexuality so we can be free to do what we want with uh, whoever we want. And the current, uh, you know, currently we're suspicious of institutions that uh, have been over us, of government or church or even family. Aren't they just structures of power that are designed to suppress us? No, we need to empower the marginalised. Whether it's economic oppression or patriarchal oppression or political oppression, if we can just get rid of these things, then we can live our lives the way we want. We can be free to choose our own paths, to follow our passions and desires and preferences. There are These are two views of freedom. Which one resonates with you a bit more? Uh, but looking at these two common views of freedom, George Lakoff, an American author who's written books about uh, these things, observes that these two ideas of freedom are fundamentally incompatible. They aim to achieve freedom in vastly different ways. But even though these are incompatible, they do have something in common, and that is their view of what freedom is. Their view of freedom is similar. Uh, both these views say that to be free is to have no constraints. The perceived constraints are, are different in these two things, but you know there might be taxation or regulation or it might be uh, things that oppress us and authority. But both agree that whatever the constraints are, if we get rid of them, then we can enjoy blissful freedom. So is one better than the other? And do either of these views capture the whole story? Well, in church, we've been going through the book of Exodus, and so far it's read like a great liberation story. 
It's recounting how one people group came out of oppression. And so if you're just jumping into the story today, welcome to you. Great to have you. Uh, let me uh, go over what's happened. The people on view are the Israelites, the Hebrews, God's chosen people in the Old Testament times. And around 1260 BC, the Israelites were a nation of slaves in Egypt. They were forced labor, building up Egyptian store cities. But as we've read through the book of Exodus, we've seen God raising up Moses, who demanded to Pharaoh, let my people go. Isn't that one of the great liberation slogans? out there. And through the power of God, through his miraculous intervention, Pharaoh does release the Israelites. They escape the Egyptian army walking through the Red Sea on dry land. And so the Israelites have been set free by God. They've been brought out of their oppression by the mighty hand of God, no longer constrained to the demands of a foreign king. What a great story of liberation and freedom. But then we hit the passage that was read to us today in Exodus. And it's full of rules. And more than that, the next ten ten chapters are full of more rules, more instructions. You might be thinking, I thought these people were meant to be free. Now they're just coming under a different type of oppression. Well, here's where the Bible's view of freedom differs to those views. On multiple occasions through the story so far, Moses demands Pharaoh to let my people go. But almost always what follows is, let my people go so that they may worship me. Our series is entitled From Slavery to Service because that's what's going on here. God's people were once slaves, but they've been liberated through the Red Sea, and now they are to worship and serve Him, serve God. Uh, scholar Christopher Walken says, Watkin says, not Christopher Walken, it's the actor, uh, Watkin says that uh, this view of freedom, freedom uh, is more the reality of how how freedom is. He says that every liberation requires a constraint. If you're going to be liberated from something, then you'll be constrained by something else. So if I want to be completely free to follow my passions wherever they take me, well then I'll need to constrain my rationality to some degree to follow my passions. Or take it the other way, if I want to be completely reasonable in the way that I live, I'm going to need to constrain my passions because my, my, my passions, because my passions aren't always reasonable. I need to constrain something in order to be free of something else. Uh, I met up with a friend this week and we got talking about running and uh, he mentioned that his dad ran five marathons through his life and, uh, uh, you know, that's an appealing freedom for some, maybe not many, but for some. What a wonderful freedom to be able to run like that, to be able to run marathons. But my friend asked his dad, uh, you know, reflecting on those marathons, what, 
what do you think? And his dad said, if I had my time again, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't have that freedom. Because you have to run about 100 k's a week to train for a marathon. And looking back, that was too costly on my family and my hobbies and other things. And so he wanted the freedom to run marathons, but he had to constrain other parts of his life. That's how freedom works. And so the question isn't, am I liberated or am I not? But it becomes, which freedom do I have and which constraints have I chosen to be under? And God's word is saying to us today, the way to freedom in all its fullness is in a covenant relationship with God. And to choose the freedom that comes from a God who knows you and loves you and who's died for you, and then to live for him under his constraints. Let's see this in our chapter for today, Exodus 20. Uh, Feel free to open your Bibles if you've got them there. And even in this chapter, the chapter doesn't start with any constraint. It starts with, uh, starts with God. And so our chapter begins, God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So it's firstly a reminder of the Israelites' freedom. They're out of Egypt. They're out of the land of slavery. They are free. But every freedom has a constraint. What what constraint comes with this freedom? Well, a constraint is relationship with God. Here's God saying, I am the Lord, Yahweh, I'm, I'm Yahweh, your God. I brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who brought you freedom. I'm the one who heard you when you were crying out, when you were under the, the thumb of Pharaoh. I'm the one who saved you by my mighty power. And I did this so that I could enter into a covenant with you that is a special commitment between the people and between God. We saw aspects of this covenant last week uh, when it said, previous chapter, out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nations. See what God's saying here? He's saying, I'm going to commit myself to you. I am choosing you. My affection is on you. My blessing is on you. That's what it means to be in covenant with me, says the Lord. Now, we're not uh, Israelites wandering around the, the uh, Sinai desert. And as Christians, we have a new covenant with God that was uh, that we were read in our, we heard in our second passage. This covenant comes through the saving death of Jesus. It's not... Uh, it's not the same as the covenant of, of the, Isra- the Israelites, but in some ways it's similar. It's still accepting that you are God's treasured possession. It's still having the God of the Bible as your God. It's the freedom of no longer being a slave, not a physical slave as in Egypt, but freedom from the slavery of sin, that is, Everything that held you back from worshipping God. Everything that was between you and God. 
God has freed you from that. As we've prayed in our confession to forgive us of our sins, God does that through the Lord Jesus. And so we're free to approach God. We're free to be his children. We're free to receive his blessing because Jesus Christ is the way to God the Father. And he has had victory over sin on the cross. And so the constraint of this freedom is again a covenant relationship with God. Just like the Israelites were saved from being slaves in Egypt, God's people today are saved from sin to worship the Lord. And so as we hit the Ten Commandments for Israel, uh, we need to remember from those first two verses that the requirements that follow, the, the commands that follow, were never the requirement for relationship with God. These aren't the ten things to do in order to earn God's love. These were never the pass mark for God's people, the standard uh, to gain salvation. No, the commandments aren't there to earn God's salvation. Israel was already saved. They were already out of slavery. But these commands are part of the constraint that go along with this freedom. He gave Israel freedom, but freedom to worship him from slavery to service. And now he's outlining what does that service look like? What does that worship look like? Well, for Israel, it means obedience to the law of God. Uh, and not, and th- these constraints are a blessing. They're a blessing. They are the commands that are the best thing for Israel because God has made them, as well as all humanity, so he knows what's best for us, and God has saved them to be a nation that are his, a holy nation. And so he knows what's good for them. As we turn to us, part of our church vision is to be a thriving church family. Well, for Israel, for them to be a thriving church nation, God has given them these commands. They're commands of how God, how they were to love God and how to love others. Today we'll just be focusing on the first four commands about how to love God. I'll come back next week for the final six commands and all the other commands in the next ten chapters uh, that follow. Uh, I've given that sermon to Tom. <laughs> anyway, back to the start of chapter 20. Uh, have a look at verse 2. Let's go to the first command. Uh, the Lord, remember, starts not with a command, starts with who he is and his covenant relationship. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. Israel had just come out of Egypt where they worshipped many gods. But no, you are God's chosen people. You are to worship God alone. And this command, uh, there's two reasons why this is a good command. Firstly, it's an invitation into reality. An invitation into reality. There's only one God. He is the one who made the universe. The one God made every different person, every different culture. 
There's not many gods. There's also not zero gods. If there's no God, then there's no higher meaning than the meaning we create for ourselves, and that's just not enough for us. We're not designed for that. We're designed to worship something greater than ourselves, and God has revealed that he alone is God. And so this command, to have no other gods before me, is an invitation to live according to what really is. But the command is also good because God is worthy of our worship. This is a God who uh, saved them from slavery in Egypt. And this is a God who has saved you, if you are in Christ, from slavery to sin. He did that through his mighty power of raising the crucified Jesus back to life. And so isn't it fitting to worship God and God alone? Who else has done that for you? God is worthy of our worship. But I think the danger for many of us here, most of us here would say that we worship God and we may not be tempted to stop worshipping God. But I reckon we can, the the greater temptation would be to add something. Add something to our worship space. Worship something alongside God. I don't know, what do you add to your worship space? What are you devoted to alongside God? Well, how might you, how might you think this through? Well, worship always involves sacrifice. What is it that leads you to sacrifice parts of your Christian faith? Are you willing to, you know, what are you willing to sacrifice or give up on, uh, so on Sunday church for? Only on occasion, of course, but what do you, what do you, sacrifice Sunday church for? Or what makes you sacrifice part of your godliness? You either give God your whole heart or you give part of it to God and part to other things which will be in conflict. Or what is just as important to you than spending time with God in prayer? What are the things that you sacrifice that for? Or maybe you think, okay, I live for God, but also I need, or I live for God and, what's the and for you? What's the thing that I need to add to God in order to have the life that I want? The God who saved you says, you shall have no other gods before me. Let us not add anything else into what we worship. Uh, On to the second commandment. Verse 4, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth below or in the waters below. So here we have idolatry prohibited. The worship of a God through an earthly form. Now on the surface we may not think this is a, a... big test for us. We may not have statues of gods in our homes or trinkets that we, that we, that we, uh, pray to or things like that. Although I've come across people who, who do. Uh, but what idolatry does is it diminishes the glory of the infinite God by representing him in some created form. 
Maybe we don't uh, diminish God through a statue. But maybe we do diminish God's glory. We try to domesticate him, make him smaller than he is in various ways. Uh, this, we saw this a lot last week, but uh, I, this struck me as I was watching The Crown on you know, the TV series about the Queen of England. Uh, obviously, when the, the Queen walks you know, out in public and everyone bows to her or curtsies and things, you expect, you expect that. But what's interesting in the series is how her family, how the royal family relates to her. Because to them, she is their mother or their grandmother or their sister, but she's also the Queen. There's always to be reverence for her and obedience to her. We can't, they, they mustn't domesticate the queen to just being, oh, she's just my sister. We can never merely have God just as our buddy or just as our traveling companion. Just kind of comes along for the ride. That's diminishing God. God can never merely be your God on Sunday. He's bigger than that. He's the God of your work. He's the God of of, uh, your having tea with friends. He's the God of you when you're all alone. We mustn't diminish God and form him into something that's smaller than his glory. Uh, what of the third command? You shall not misuse, misuse the name of the Lord your God. Uh, one of the trickiest commands to understand in my mind, I always thought it was uh, that you should never use God or Jesus Christ as a swear word. Not when you miss the two-foot putt on the 18th green or when you accidentally back your car into a power pole. That, obviously, that's totally inappropriate if we worship God and, and the Lord Jesus Christ. But the command goes much beyond this. Uh, the word misuse is uh, also could be translated to bear falsely. That is, if you bear the name of the Lord, if you bear his reputation, if you call yourself Christian, then you need to live that out faithfully. Uh, now, the Football World Cup is on, you may have heard, so let me do a football analogy. It's rare for me. Uh, anyone know who this is? Michael? Ronaldinho, yes, famous uh, soccer player about 10 years ago. Uh, back then, he was sponsored by Coca-Cola. And so he would bear that brand on his clothes and in what he drank and as he you know, was an ambassador for them. But can you see the issue in the photo? There is, <laughs> there is Pepsi on the table, uh, which was put there. But during that press conference, he drank Pepsi in front of all the all the media. Uh, Coke dropped his three quarters of a million dollar sponsorship of Ronaldinho uh, because he bore the name of Coca-Cola falsely. He said he was a sponsor of Coke, and yeah, this is what he did. Uh, let's go from soft drinks to the Lord Almighty. Uh, scholar Daniel Block puts it this way. God has the fair right to, sorry, God has the right to fair and honest representation. God is saying, you are my people, represent me rightly. 
we view bearing the name of Jesus uh, primarily in claiming God is our God, his, our covenant Lord. And so if we bear it falsely, then we live for something else. If we bear the name of the Lord Jesus, we're claiming allegiance to him and advertising him who owns us. So to break the third command is to do something like to say that you're a Christian, but really deep down you're just a good person who doesn't actually interact with God at all. Or that you say that you're a Christian, but you really want all the power to go to you, and so you're quite happy to love a bit of gossip or to bring down others because it makes you good. Or you say that you're a Christian, but really your career comes first, or the grandkids comes first. The third command is you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And finally and quickly, fourth command, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Lots I could say here, the Sabbath day was a day of rest for Israel, everything had to stop. Uh, The point I'm going to draw out today is the Bible says we're designed for rest. But when we think of rest, we think of relaxation, you know, flopping on the couch, let's go back here, flopping on the couch or getting lost in a good book. Or we think of recharge, what's going to refuel my batteries, and they're important things. But the core of the Sabbath is not self-care, but self-denial. The idea of Sabbath is deliberately stopping any activity that might reinforce my belief that I, uh, that I am self-sufficient, that I have all that I need in me. And so taking a Sabbath is denying our need to be in control, to have things in order to be settled. It's denying our, our, our need to achieve because we stop and remember that God is the one who keeps the universe going and keeps our little universe going as well. So what steals your rest? Is it your ambition or your anxiety over the things that are currently undone? Is it screens? Is it your self-worth which is based on productivity? The Israelites had to stop for a day, even in the height of the harvest. So are you willing to stop and acknowledge that God is the one in control of your life and in control of your success? Well, they are the first four of the Ten Commandments. But all those things are constraints, aren't they? And so as we finish up, which freedom is most important to you? Like my finance lecturer, if the freedom of government regulation is the most important thing, then you will be under a constraint. You'll be under the constraint of a mark, of the market. And the market is just out to get the highest return for shareholders. It doesn't love you. It doesn't know you. The market won't die for you. Or if you seek freedom of oppression, well, it's a worthy cause, but the goal of that is often so that people can live how they want. But then that becomes the restraint, and we've seen the growing trend that living according to your own desires is stressing us out, is depressing us out. No, the Bible says that true freedom, the freedom we're made for, is found in a covenant relationship with God who knows you, who is concerned for you, and who has died for you so that he can be with you. And along with the freedom of knowing God, is following these commands as acts of worship 
worshipping God alone, undiminishing his glory, bearing his name faithfully and resting to acknowledge his sovereignty. That is where true freedom is found. If the musicians would come up, we're going to sing of the glorious freedom that we have in the Lord Jesus. And actually, we're going to look ahead to the perfected freedom of Zion, the spiritual city where God's people are destined to be with him for eternity. Let's stand and sing.